If you would take out your Bibles and open them to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 4. As we continue along in our series of Matthew, hopefully one of the things that you'll notice that I will continue to do is, and I think Matthew does this, but it's to make sure that we're emphasizing the reality of who Jesus is, the reality of the history surrounding the person of Christ, that he is the God-man who came to earth, and the reason why I, I, it's just on my mind a great deal, and that is just because through the ebb and flow of various attacks on the church or on Christian doctrine, there is an uptick in a, a moving away from who Christ is, where they would, they would talk about Christ but only in this, but not in the sense of the reality of the God-Man who lived on Earth with us physically. It, it is moving towards the idea of the idea of Christ, that He's a Christ figure, that type of thing, uh, moving away from the concreteness of what's given to us. What Christ has done for us does affect us spiritually in every way that an individual can think of spirituality. But at the same time, there is a physical element to this. The simple thing is that when we are raised from the dead, it is our bodies that are raised. We will be who we are with the Lord for all of eternity. We're not spirits floating around. It will be I don't know if I have the same name. I don't really care. But in a sense, Bob Dimmitt is going to be in heaven. The Bob that you knew here, except I'll be a lot better in many ways. And when you are there, you will be you. We will be physically raised because we have been redeemed in every way by Christ. And so when you begin to attack who Christ is, the reality of, of this God-man, automatically it begins to diminish the atonement. It begins to change how people understand salvation. It begins to affect what we think about God himself. And then our entire outlook on life and our purpose of life begins to, to falter and change. Men begin to, when I say men, mankind begins to move away from the reality of heaven and hell, definitely away from judgment away from being held responsible for what we do, moving away from absolute truth. All those things are intermingled in all of this. So then when we get back into the, in a sense, the nitty-grittiness of reading the Bible for what it says, remember, we're not just looking for spiritual truth. That's a very poor approach. We're looking to see what the Bible says, what all of it says, and trying to understand it in its context and what is being presented to us, and not trying to reinterpret it in our way, in a way we think is best. We want to interpret it so we understand what it says. And so that's the goal as we work our way through Matthew. It's actually the goal in, in all of our approach to the Word of God. But 
in a sense more so just because of the way things are moving in our society and really in the world as a whole, many Western countries anyway, as uh, various social and political factors continue to infiltrate the minds of people and then also the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your grace, kindness, and love, and we ask that you will grant us understanding of your word. We pray, Lord, that we would see the significance of every aspect of who Christ is and its impact on our life. We pray that you give to us clarity of thought. We ask, Lord, that we would desire to be submissive to every aspect of the word of God so that not only is our behavior Line, align itself and conform to the word of God, but even the way that we think about things and the way that we think about you and the way that we think about life and the way that we approach life, that all of it, Father, will be deeply affected by the word of God. That, Father, we will be people of truth, that we will live by the truth, that we will speak the truth, that we will only want the truth in every way. That, Father, again, we may live lives that really speak well of you in every way that you may be glorified. We thank you, Father, again for preserving your word for us. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew 4, beginning in verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the first question that I ask is why? What is going on? Why, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, did he withdraw to Galilee? Why did he do that? Was Jesus concerned about being arrested like John? Maybe Matthew doesn't mention that John was arrested and then Jesus now is withdrawn from the area. He mentions that specifically. He doesn't tell us any reasons why. He just states what took place. Who arrested John? Well, Luke chapter 3 tells us. Herod the Tatriarch, who had been reproved by him, by John, for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So those who, there are those who think that because of the association between John and Jesus, that meant Jesus could have been in danger of being caught up in all of this. Perhaps. That, that could be true. We don't know. It, it's a possibility. It could be nothing more than Jesus knew the scripture, knew where he needed to go, that's his next stop. Both of those can, even can work in conjunction with each other. But nonetheless, he does this, and there's a reason, other reasons for it, and they're important for us to understand. Verse 13 says, Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So basically what happens, Jesus is moving to Capernaum, you could say that he's setting up his headquarters there. Capernaum is about 40 miles northeast of Nazareth. It's about 106 miles from Jerusalem. So a lot of things happen in Jesus' life happen in a pretty small area. It sits on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. 
Capernaum was also the home of some of the disciples, Peter, James, Andrew, John, and Matthew. Capernaum was a fishing village. It was located very strategically along a very busy highway known as the Via Maris, which was a major trade route that ran from Egypt to the land of Israel to Mesopotamia. Capernaum had about 12,000 uh, citizens uh, in its location there. Moving to Capernaum, on one hand, would make a lot of sense for Jesus because it was a very strategic location because news of whatever Jesus did and whatever Jesus would have said would have spread very quickly because it's that major thoroughfare that's there. So Matthew then quotes Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Let me read to you Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. It says, But there would be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. When Matthew quotes this, Matthew's not just thinking, oh, Jesus moved to Capernaum. That's, you know, that's this area of, of where Zebulun is. Oh, the word Zebulun appears in Isaiah. I'll quote that. That's not what he's doing. Uh, there's there's a specific reasons why he's quoting from this passage in Isaiah. Now, for us, to make sure that we have a pretty good understanding as to why this is being quoted, because we don't have the Old Testament memorized like really many in Israel had uh, in those days. They had a great familiarity with the Old Testament. They would have known why this was being quoted by Matthew. But we're, we might still be unfamiliar. Well, I mean, I can see some connections here, but I want us to see a majority of the connections. So I want to give the background. So we want to go back to Isaiah chapter 8 and begin to understand what this section in Isaiah is talking about. Now, I'm not going to read through uh, chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9 of Isaiah, but I'm going to, we're going to talk about it for just a moment to kind of give you the setting so that we have a greater understanding of what's behind what he says here, or what he quotes from here in Isaiah chapter 9. So when you go back, this whole section of Isaiah, primarily chapter 8 through uh, verse 7 of chapter 9, Isaiah is concerned with the deliverance from the Aram-Israel alliance. So what that was is the Assyrians or the Chaldeans or the Arameans, that group of individuals, they had made an alliance with Israel. And the subsequent Assyrian invasion that would eventually extend to Judah, there's this alliance, there's this, this, it was a forced alliance, but there's this connection here, there's this relationship here, and that's what Isaiah is concerned about. The focus is positive, noting that the nation would be delivered from this. So the nation was really in bondage. Remember that sometimes in, in, the, in I guess you say ancient times, when two countries would make an alliance, it wasn't always two equals making alliance. Sometimes what it is is this. You're about to wipe out my nation. Let's be friends. That's kind of the idea. Let's be friends and we'll pay, you, we'll, we'll pay taxes to you, basically, if you let us live. If you don't kill our women and children and all of our young men, we'll pay you this much tribute. We'll give you this much of our crops. Uh, so that's, how the, uh, that's how, what the alliance would have been and what was going on here. So it, it could be, it's, the, the nation of Israel is kind of in a depressed state. They're, they're oppressed again. 
it's because of their sin. You know, when you read through the history of Israel, you see that oftentimes that God is blessing them and he protects them from their enemies and then they, they begin to sin. And as they sin, they're warned by the prophets. They need to repent, they need to turn around. They don't really listen. And so what does God do? He brings in another nation and they basically oppress the people and the people now are in this oppression and then eventually, which may take decades, they kind of come to their senses and they realize what has happened and they return to the Lord and the Lord delivers them. And then the Lord warns them to make sure that they remain faithful because they don't, the Lord will bring in uh, and it'll happen again. And what takes place is it may be decades, it may be a couple hundred years, but what happens to Israel? Right back to before, worshiping idols, doing things, and God sends prophets and he warns them. And if you don't do this, this is gonna happen. And they don't listen. Sometimes they kill the prophets. Uh, and what ends up happening is another nation comes in, oppresses the people. And this cycle starts to see this happens over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. So here is this, there's this talk of being delivered from this oppression that they're in. In chapter 7 of Isaiah, Isaiah had prophesied the fall of the Aram-Israeli alliance. In chapter 8 through verse 7 of chapter 9, he gives another prophecy of the same event. So when you get to chapter 9 of Isaiah, he speaks of the coming deliverer. This deliverer is going to affect changes in the nation of which Isaiah had been speaking. The Messiah's coming will lead the nation into joy and prosperity, which had been lacking for years. When you're being taxed heavily, there's not a lot of joy and happiness. There's a lot of sadness. There's a, you know, you're, people are doing, I guess you, you would say, that they're trying to hide their wealth. Uh, or what little wealth they have from the oppressors. You know, they're, they're trying to make sure that they have enough food for themselves before, that, before the tax man comes, or maybe before their military comes and just says, well, whatever you have belongs to us anyway, and they take it all. This is not a good existence for them to have. And so they're waiting to be delivered from this. They want to have peace. Uh, for them, peace means you don't have to worry about some of their military moving into your home or kidnapping your daughters or your sons or stealing whatever you have, or maybe just killing you for fun. That's, there, there's a lot of oppression there. They, they want to be delivered from that, and that's what's on their mind. And now there's this promise that this Messiah is going to do this for them. And they're going to lead, so the nation will be led into joy and prosperity. His coming will fulfill the promises to Abraham and David. So again, throughout the Old Testament, Israel begins to hope for a deliverer, Part of what drives them is not just to be free from the oppression, though that's obviously very prominent on their minds. But what gives strength to their request is the covenant that God made with Abraham. So in their, their prayer would be something like, God, please deliver us. They may repent of their sin. And then God, remember, you have promised us through our father Abraham that you would do this and this and this. And so they would continue to, continue to look, look back to that. So even under Roman occupation, those in Israel are looking to this covenant that God had made with them. Not everybody there is a believer. You know, there are those who maybe blame God for their oppression. There's all kinds of views that people have. But there are, there are a large number of those who are looking for God that we will not be destroyed, we will not be completely wiped out because God has made a promise. God made a covenant. And so that's always in the forefront of their mind. And so this Messiah that they're looking for is going to fulfill that for them. So Isaiah speaks of this child. This child is going to grow up to be the deliverer. 
not a, the sign of a deliverer. He will be the deliverer himself. He will effect the changes necessary for prosperity and spirituality to come to the nation. Whenever the prophets would speak to the nation of Israel about being delivered and, and returning to, in a, to being in a prosperous state, what was always connected to that was spiritual prosperity, where they would be worshiping the Lord again, worshiping the Lord in freedom, rejoicing in, in, in God their Savior and what God had, was going to do for them. Because God was not only going to deliver them from their present enemy, there's all these promises in the Old Testament of God blessing the land, and the land being prosperous, harvest time, and the next harvest time, and the next harvest time, being protected from then on from their enemies, where they'll be left alone, because they have more than one enemy, and, and they'll be safe from them if they honor the Lord, and they worship the Lord, and they keep the Lord first, and they don't worship idols. They remain loyal to God. They remain committed to Him. And so that's always mixed into the prophecy for them. And so there's, there's always this idea of a physical prosperity of being restored in Israel, a physical peace, but also spiritually as well, so that their commitments to the Lord will, in a sense, be renewed and come to fruition. So specifically then, the verses that Matthew quotes from, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9, he says, a time will come when gloom and darkness will be a thing of the past. So think in these terms as well. That not only is there gloom and darkness begin because of the physical oppression, there's also gloom and darkness because of spiritual darkness. They can't see their way. When we are spiritually dark, we are confused, we are depressed or sad, we are lost. We, we see the same thing today. If an individual is depressed, if an individual, if an individual is, is viewing life very negatively, we can recognize, at least as Christians, that there's a spiritual darkness there because there's no hope. You know, we think all the time, without the Lord, where is the hope? There's, there's no real hope there. That's why we often wonder as believers, uh, this, this conversation is common. Um, at least it is among people here when we do funerals, especially when we bury those who we know knew the Lord, though there was always sadness with the separation, there is a sense of contentment. There's not a sense of despair. And there's a, a hopefulness in the sense of a guarantee that we really will see them again one day. That's all because of Christ. So, so it's not a time of gloom for us. So when he talks about these individuals being delivered from gloom and darkness, it's not just physical oppression. It is maybe you could even say it's primarily this spiritual darkness that they're in. So the gloom on the northern section of Israel came because of discipline. God humbled them in the past. Zebulun and Naphtali for a while. Though Isaiah was probably using these two tribal names to represent the northern kingdom, again, it is striking that Jesus' upbringing and early ministry was mostly in that very area near the Sea of Galilee. His presence honored that area. Back in 732 B.C., this northern portion of Israel became an Assyrian province. And so it was humbled. And the people there were, again, in gloominess and darkness. They were under Gentile domination. And so the area was called Galilee of the Gentiles. In fact, remember, we've mentioned this before, that even during the life of Christ, other Jews looked down on the Jews who lived in Galilee because of the close association with the Gentiles. 
You could almost say it this way, yeah, the, the Jews from there, yeah, they, they live with dogs. They're comfortable with dogs. You know, because the dog was considered a scavenger, which they are. Um, you, know, they, you know, dogs have certain habits that are just disgusting. Um, and so they viewed dogs that way. So if you're, if you're comfortable with the dogs, then, then you'd be viewed very poorly as well. Nobody would want, what, that's why, uh, you know, what good can come out of Nazareth? What good can come out of Galilee? That's kind of the idea. You, you're, you're from there, you're automatically looked down upon. You're, you're of no value. If you have any value, you come from there. People are shocked. People are surprised. That kind of thing. What he mentions here in Isaiah, the way of the sea, that describes a major international highway running through the region. That's the Via Maris. It's the only place in the Bible where that phrase is used, but again, it appears a lot in Assyrian and Egyptian records because that road was used so great. In fact, it was the road that the invading Assyrians uh, took uh, when they were invading the northern kingdom. So from that area, the Messiah will arise and will wipe away gloom and darkness that was brought on by Gentile domination. But again, that was brought on because of their sin, Israel's sin and rebellion against God. Verse 2, there's what we call Hebrew parallelism, and that's where, you know, uh, whenever you see certain things repeated, it's, it's being done for emphasis. You know, we see the dawning of a great light, the great light comes from there. There's the dawning of a great light, Jesus is the great light. I mean, it, it, it's using the word light, it's using these words, sometimes repeating them on purpose for emphasis uh, to cause us to focus on something. So the people were in darkness and in the shadow of death. Then they saw a great light, and the light dawned on them. That's the idea. So here Matthew is applying this passage to Jesus, who began his preaching and healing ministry in that region. God had humbled Zebulun and Naphtali for a while. The city of Nazareth is in the territory or in the tribal territory of Zebulun. That's where Jesus grew up. Now there is in your bulletins a map. Uh, maps sometimes can be good, just to helping us to visualize certain things. So I just want you to notice that if you look toward the top of the map, there's the little blue dot, which is called the Sea of Galilee. And you can see where Nazareth is, and where Magdala is, and Capernaum, and Chorazin, and Bethsaida, and Gennesaret. All those in that area, there's a great deal, a majority of the things that Jesus did was done in that area. Right? You can see where Jerusalem is going on down, so that's about 100 to 110 miles south of there. But that, so a lot of things happen in this small little area. But this little area is what Isaiah is focusing on and what Matthew is focusing on because this is where Jesus spends a majority of his time and where his ministry comes out of. And again, a lot of his ministry takes place there. So again, the city of Nazareth is in the tribal territory of Zebulun. Again, that's where Jesus grew up. Capernaum is in the territory of Naphtali which also includes the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida. So those three cities, Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida, that's where a majority of the miracles that Jesus performed were done. A majority of them were done there. So again, on one hand, uh, it's good they were done there because it's close to this major highway and news can travel very quickly, but also it's done because of what God had promised. This area of gloom and darkness, that was going to dissipate. Because a great light was going to come, and which is Jesus. And he's right there in the midst of this area that in a sense had been cursed because of Israel's sin and because of God's judgment. So the regional area of Galilee includes Nazareth, Nain, Magdala, Gennesaret, as well as those three cities. Again, why all of this? 
because Matthew is concerned with more than just the geographical movements of Jesus and the place of his residence. Jesus' fulfillment of those features of this prophecy confirms that Jesus is the great light that will disperse the darkness that enshrouds the people who will suffer under God's judgment. Matthew wants us, he wants his readers to recall the rest of the prophecy with this promise of joy, liberation from oppression, victory over enemies, and lasting peace. He wants them to be encouraged now about who Jesus is and what he was coming to do. One more thing again we want to keep in mind, which I mentioned earlier, and that is that Jesus is not a Christ figure. He is the Christ, meaning he is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. All those things mean the same thing. Jesus is not fulfilling prophecy in some esoteric, mystical, or spiritual way. He is literally fulfilling scripture. He is literally fulfilling prophecy. When the Bible said he'd be born in Bethlehem, guess where Jesus was born? In Bethlehem. Not in the Bethlehem of your mind or my mind or his mind. It was in Bethlehem. A great light has come to this area that's in gloom, in, in, that is in gloom and darkness. It wasn't just in a spiritual sense. It was, it was in that sense, but in every real way, the message of mankind, the message of salvation is being brought to us from this depressed area. He is forthrightly, Jesus is forthrightly and plainly a human being. Not merely a human being, but he is a human. He is the Messiah. He is going to actually bring these things in. He is going to bring in lasting peace. He's going to bring in victory over enemies. He's going to do that. He will not only bring in spiritual peace, but again, real physical peace. He does not just bring liberation from sin in a spiritual way, but liberation from its power and consequences. Not just a sense of rest from the oppression of our very real guilt, but the actual removal of guilt itself. When we talk about what Jesus Christ does for us, we know this as believers, that when, when we say that we've been delivered from the power of sin, again, that's not just some nice idea. The Bible really means that. Which then means that when you and I sin, unfortunately, but it's the truth, we always sin on purpose. It's always what we choose to do. We are fully accountable to God when we sin. We might want to blame other things and other people. And those things do have influence on us, but none of those things cause us to do wrong. We've been delivered from that power. We may have an overwhelming desire to do certain things. It may feel overwhelming, but it cannot be truly overwhelming to where you must give in. Because we've been delivered from that. And then, of course, as, as uh, I've quoted from many times, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 makes it very clear that there is no temptation that has overtaken you. That not only is it common to man, but God himself will make sure you are not tempted beyond what you are able to handle. Amen. Now, he's not promising that you'll be able to handle it in the flesh. We, may need, we, we can handle it because we depend upon him, but it can be handled. And just to make sure that we are really on the safe side, he's also promised that there's always a way of escape. So, you know, when we confess our sins on Sunday morning, you know, we, we need to kind of have that in our mind, knowing that when we, when we blow it, when we're short with an individual, when we're impatient, or whatever form our sin takes, we are... We're fully responsible. And I, I'll be honest, as a human being, I don't like that. I want to blame someone else. I want to blame them. 
If, if I get mad at Sean, I want to blame him. I want to say, I know, Sean, I shouldn't have yelled at you, but you know, you really irritate me sometimes. He doesn't, at least not yet. But the point is, is even if he did, that's not an excuse for me because I've been delivered from the power of sin. And, and so that's what we're talking about here. And of course, it's great news for all of us that we've not just been delivered from the feeling of guilt, we've been delivered from guilt, which is just an incredible thought when you think about that. But lastly, I want to focus on this in closing, and it's this. Look at verse 16. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what I want to do, which sounds like it's a jump, but it's not a jump, and you'll see that in a minute. I want to talk about the Shekinah glory. What is the Shekinah glory? It is the visible manifestation of the presence of God. It is the majestic presence or manifestation of God in which he descends to dwell among men. Whenever the invisible God becomes visible, and whenever the omnipresence of God is localized, this is the Shekinah glory. We see that in the Old Testament, when, when, when Israel is being led by the, the pillar of cloud, that's the Shekinah glory. That is the, pre, the physical manifestation of the presence of God. At, at night, it was a pillar of fire. That was the, that, if, if, you had, if you were part of Israel and you had camped out at night, and the tabernacle has been erected, and then we see the, the, the pillar of flame that's directly over the tabernacle, you take your son to the, to the entrance of your tent before you go to bed, and you see that? God's with us. Amen. And we can sleep in peace Amen. because he's watching over us. You get a glimpse of that, you know, when the army of Egypt was chasing after Israel. Who went behind the nation of Israel when they were stuck at the Red Sea? God. Israel, the Egyptians were in, in darkness. They couldn't proceed any further. God was delivering them. God was protecting Israel. God was there. He was with them. So that's the Shekinah glory. This, it is the visible manifestation of the presence of God. In the Bible, it uses phrases like the glory of Jehovah or the glory of the Lord. That's the Shekinah glory. Again, in the Old Testament, it normally took the form of light or fire or cloud or some combination. In the New Testament, in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, it says, In the same region, there were shepherds out in the flock, shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by, by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. The glory of the Lord was that great light that appeared. That's the Shekinah glory. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, which we covered before. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When we talked about that, we talked about how that star wasn't a real star and that what it was, it was the Shekinah glory. Going on in chapter 2 of Matthew in verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen rose, went before them until they came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The Shekinah glory reappears after that in a completely new form. And that's in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. It proclaims the coming of the Shekinah light in a new, visible manifestation. What is that? Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory as the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
The word dwelt in the Greek language does not simply mean to dwell. There's another Greek word for that. It really means to tabernacle. Kind of a strange way to put it, but there's a reason why that word was used. He came to tabernacle among us. Why that, why that strange terminology? Because he was the new, visible manifestation of the presence of God dwelling among men. The result is that man will be able to behold the glory of God in the form of a man, the God-man. Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 9-2. He is the one we come to worship. He is the visible manifestation of God. He is God dwelling with us. And we know that as believers, we will dwell with him for all of eternity. It's not going to be a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire. It's going to be the person of Jesus Christ. Let me read to you once again now from Isaiah 9. As we now know beyond a shadow of a doubt, not only that Jesus is the Messiah, which you already knew, but that his physical presence in Capernaum, in Nazareth, was to fulfill this prophecy where Israel, this area of Israel, because of their rebellion against God, had been under oppression of various armies because of her sin, and this is the judgment of God, and, they've, and they are seeking to be delivered, and there's the promise of a deliverer, and, the, and part of that promise is, is that the people in that region will have seen a great light. Thank goodness they're not the only ones that have seen the great light. It's been recorded for us. Isaiah 9, beginning in verse 1. But there would be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to, uphold, and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That is such a marvelous passage that, that we have here concerning Christ. And what those people, those who believed, what they could say is they could point to Jesus. Those who lived in Capernaum, though most didn't. Most of the miracles were done there, and most of them didn't believe. But the ones who did, once again, you could take your son to the door of your house. But you weren't going to point to a pillar of cloud, to a pillar of fire. You could point to that man right over there. That man does the works of God. He is the deliverer. He is our hope. He is the one that we've been waiting for. How great is that? Hope is realized right in front of us. This is the one whom we put our hope in. 
We will be delivered from this body of sin. We will be delivered from the oppression, whether you feel the oppression in a great way or in a small way. The oppression of believers and of Christ is in this world and continues to remain in this world and will be there until the Lord returns. He is going to come for us. He will deliver us and he will bring very real peace, not just in the spiritual way that we enjoy now, but in a very real way, where the day will come where we will no longer have to worry about which party is in the White House because we won't need a White House. It won't matter who dominates Congress or the Senate. We won't need that. We'll have the perfect God-man who rules in righteousness and peace ruling over the world. And we will all be able to sleep in absolute comfort and serenity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your grace and your kindness and your love. And we thank you, Lord, that Christ fulfills every single passage of the Word of God. And we thank you, Lord, that you have seen to it that those of us who believe have heard the gospel of Jesus and you've regenerated us, and we thank you for that. And Father, how we ask that you would continue to draw us closer to yourself, enabling us, Father, more and more each day and each week and each month to see and understand to a greater degree the glory of Christ. Father, for those who do not know Christ, we know, Lord, that all of us can experience darkness and gloom for many different reasons. But Father, whether the oppression comes from the Roman government or whether it's our government or whether it's just because of our own sin and our horrible choices or perhaps the sin of others, the one who would deliver us is Christ. And Father, for those who do not know you, we pray that you would enlighten them to their need of Christ and that the path to peace the path to all good things is through Christ. To be reunited with you through Christ. To be forgiven of all of our sin, our wickedness, our iniquity. And to be made one with you. And to be adopted into your family. And Father, we pray and we ask that you would, in your kindness, but if necessary, firmness, reveal these things to those who do not know you. Father, we will rejoice with the angels in heaven over each one who comes to believe in Christ. As always, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Father, for blessing us in ways that go beyond our imagination. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.